Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji. Today's episode, I'm excited to bring you Ryan Hoover, who is the founder of Product Hunt, which later sold to Angelus, and now manages the Weekend Fund, which acts as a collaborative investor at the pre-seed and seed stage levels. In this episode, we discuss Ryan's path from founder to investor, and how despite managing smaller fund sizes, he's developed a great system to punch above his weight class with a clear mission on driving high NPS to founders. I've always found Ryan to be one of the most helpful, thoughtful, and authentic people in the early stage ecosystem, and I know you're gonna enjoy the conversation. Now let's get into it. This episode of Venture Unlocked is brought to you by Omni. Omni has helped well over 100 venture firms at all sizes improve their investment decision-making by using actionable, granular, economic, and legal data extracted from actual deal documents. By using Omni, fund managers can be much more confident in their ownership rights and economics and better serve all of their constituents. As somebody that loves working with emerging managers and understands the difficulty of scaling a firm, I'm so excited to see that Omni's solution helps firms become much more institutional through the use of real actionable data that acts as the single source of truth for their portfolios. This in turn translates to more streamlined fundraising processes as LPs can confidently assess the performance of existing portfolios. Check out their solutions at omni.fund. That's A-U-M-N-I dot fund. Ryan, so great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks, Samir. I'm really excited about this conversation. You've taken a very interesting path into venture. Before we get into what you do right now, how the Weekend Fund operates, let's start with your journey into tech. Started about maybe a decade ago. Um, my first job in, in technology was actually as an intern in a video game startup in Eugene, Oregon, where I'm from. And it was sort of a dream job. I mean, being able to work in the video game industry as I guess I was, what, 20 years old or so then? was super fun and learned a lot there, ended up eventually falling into product management. So went from social media intern, which feels like such a cliche, <laughs> into marketing, into product management. And, and then from there, I ended up leaving that video game company to join a different company in San Francisco. And this was 2010 when I made that move. Tech is always exciting, but especially at that time in my career, it was I was I remember going from SFO for the interview and driving down the highway and seeing all of these signs of tech companies and seeing the offices of tech companies that I admired and, and looked at uh, on the internet. And I felt like this was such a cool place to uh, immerse myself in. And so that company was in the mobile gaming industry, you know, joined as employee number 10, roughly. And then over about three and a half years, we grew to about 100 people. And so I saw a lot of changes and, and learned a lot about scaling a company, both the good and the bad. Um, and you know, from there, ultimately decided to leave and, and figure out kind of my next thing. Um, I actually left Playhaven was the name of the company. I left Playhaven without exactly an idea of what I wanted to do. I was fortunate to have sort of this fallback, which was, you know, if things don't work out, maybe I'll go back to Eugene, Oregon and live in my parents' place. So I had that, that privilege. Um, but fortunately, it was during that time that I was tinkering and, and you know, blogging as well, but tinkering with a lot of other ideas. And, and one of those was Product Hunt. And so that was late 2013 that Product Hunt started. And so you started Product Hunt in 2013. What was the, the actual vision of Product Hunt, which I know was acquired by AngelList and has had so many interesting products and companies on there? What did you see when you launched it? And ultimately, what led to the decision to sell to AngelList a, a few years later? Part of me would love to do the revisionist history thing and, and say how insightful I was and, and how I saw this market opportunity and capitalized on it and all of these things. But the reality was, 
product that was simply a side project. I, I actually didn't even call it a side project. They call it an experiment. <laughs> it went from experiment to side project to startup. And the idea was simply, I, I love discovering products. I love talking about them with friends. It's something that we would often do offline or maybe, uh, you know, through like private message groups, like sharing different apps that we discovered. And I was also kind of this weirdo that would, would even browse like the app store of Japan and other countries, just because I was curious what apps were popular there. And part of the inspiration was one, just curiosity, but two, it was also inspiration to discover like different UI patterns and different ways of, of uh, you know, building or creating different, different apps, particularly in consumer. And as a product manager, I felt like that was, that was like part of my job in a sense, like I should be up to date and I should be, you know, exploring what people are building. And so the idea really wasn't that thought through. It was just, I thought this would be cool. And it started off as a newsletter, um, which was the easiest way to kind of get something up and running. And from there, the newsletter got some traction. There was clearly like some I would say maybe hole that we were filling where other early adopters, other people in technology were also curious and excited to explore and discover these products. And, you know, that email then turned into a community and a website. And uh, we modeled off after, you know, Reddit kind of interactions. We didn't want to reinvent the wheel when it came to um, like social uh, UGC kind of contributions. And so long story short, it, it quickly grew. We, we realized then that there was in many ways, this hole in the market where I don't think there was a place for uh, early adopters and people who are really excited about technology to really geek out about these things and talk about these things. And, and then you have on the, the founder and kind of the maker side of things, distribution and getting your first even 100 users is super challenging for a lot of people. And a lot of people you know, would in some ways equate what we built to an extension of what was happening in the press to some extent. People saw the press as their only way to get attention. Most people don't have a large following. And the only hope for them, at least many feel, is, is press and getting that gatekeeper to write about them. But of course, it's not the press's job to promote you and your startup. And furthermore, there's so many companies. How could, how could the press possibly service all of those companies? You know, we really took a community first angle and um, built product hunt. And then over the course of about Three, a little bit more than three years, we ended up going through Y Combinator, raised a Series A with Andreessen Horowitz, and then sold to Angelus at the end of 2016. And then from there, uh, unlike some other, I think, founder stories, you hear a lot of, of companies who get acquired and then either one, they ultimately become a shell of what's, what they once were, maybe the brand gets killed off. Um, the, the strategy with Angelus was, was really never to have AngelList, like rebrand it to like AngelList Hunt or whatever <laughs> terrible name you want to come up with. But it was really to maintain what we were doing and create an ecosystem and a community on the internet for the tech community. So I, I remained up until recently for about five, four more years as CEO of the company and, and then just recently stepped down. You mentioned highly synergistic acquisition and you know, running the company full time. But along the way, you also decided to put on the hat of investing in companies and becoming and I won't call it a VC because I know a lot of people that are raising, you know, smaller funds, they don't necessarily want to go down the VC path or not intending on that being the long-term path, but you created the weekend fund. What exactly let and catalyzed you to, you know, raise fund one and how much of that was conceived through your experience as a product hunt? You know, I, I actually considered joining venture pre-product hunt. So as I was post-Play Haven considering and, and kind of exploring different options, I... I did consider venture and I was like, 
you know, I love discovering products. I love talking to founders. I love supporting early stage companies. Maybe venture would be a good path. And this was 2013. And the reality was the path then was actually very different than what the path is today to get into venture. Really, the only option, if I was lucky, would be to join as an associate at some big firm. Ultimately, I never pursued it uh, because I felt that that would not be as rewarding. I am, I'm also an introvert, and the idea of bouncing around to different cafes and doing coffee meetings all day as kind of an associate would just not be, <laughs> I think, my jam. And so I, I sort of bookmarked it at that moment in 2013 to think about, okay, well, maybe this is something I want to pursue. And so it was really after the acquisition of Product Hunt that I took it seriously and, and realized, okay, I do want to pursue investing. I'm now at a place where I feel like I've built some experience and some credibility in the ecosystem to be able to invest. And, and I started off first just having a conversation with Naval about it. And this was right when AngelList was starting to roll out their, their venture funds. So essentially, you know this, but for maybe the audience that doesn't, AngelList provides essentially back office and all the support you need to run a venture fund, including, you know, uh, the legal setup, um, accounting, reporting, operational back office duties. And fortunately, you get to just do the, the fun part, the part that, you know, investors want to work on, which is finding companies and investing in them. So I talked to Naval and I talked through the different options. There are kind of like three different options, really. One is I could invest my own money, which really wasn't much of an option. I don't have a lot of liquid capital to invest. And so it would have been probably the best option for me. Two, I could have joined maybe another firm as a scout. And that, while is appealing and does simplify things, is relatively easy compared to raising a fund. It doesn't establish a brand or create, um, I think, a, a platform for me to build on top of long term, um, as well as a fund does. And so ultimately decided to raise a fund. Transparently, I was didn't think I could. Um, I, I didn't even think about raising a fund. I'm like, that sounds daunting. Again, this was 2013. Sorry, not 2013, 2016. Not nearly as many people were raising funds back then compared to today. And with Naval and, and some other people's support, I got some advice on how to approach that. And so that first fund was $3 million. And uh, you know, we fully deployed it over about two years. And now we're currently on the second fund, which is $10 million. Well, it's a great story. And you're right. Back then, the barriers of entry into venture were significantly higher than they are today. And, and of course, with rolling funds, we are seeing a lot of managers raise much smaller funds to deploy in companies. As we've seen that shift, though, you mentioned going from $3 million to $10 million. Tell us a little bit about what that meant for your investing model and maybe speak to things like portfolio construction, how you're actually running the firm on a day-to-day -day standpoint? Is it much more institutional? I guess, lastly, from a value-add perspective, you know, has it really changed from fund one to fund two? We initially were targeting $6 million for the second fund, and uh, we ultimately just left the fund open and kept raising more money <laughs> over time as we started deploying capital. And funny enough, the fund is actually exactly $10 million. It's not $10 million and $1. It's exactly 10 And the reason for that is actually we, we have over 99 LPs. And a lot of people don't know this, but if you have more than a $10 million fund, your LP limit is 99 or less. But if you're under 10 million, you can raise from 249 LPs. So I, I sort of fell into that. I actually got worried, frankly, um, because I, I didn't think we would get more than 99 LPs. And then all of a sudden kind of snuck up on us. And uh, so fortunately, we had the ability to raise for more. But yeah, for us, the the model actually isn't different between fund one and fund two, with exception of the check size. 
And so in the first fund, our average check size uh, is about $65,000. So we, we deployed roughly 50 to 100K checks, check sizes. And in the second fund, uh, it's between two to three times that. Um, we'll see what it comes out to be in the end. The size of the check is still small enough where we can be collaborative and we can, in some ways, like sneak into competitive deals. Um, whereas if we had a $25 million or $50 million fund, our model would have to change and our strategy would change, I believe, dramatically because it's much, much harder to fit a 500K check into a deal than it is to fit a 150K check. And as you know, like you can't write a bunch of 150K checks if you're managing a $50 million fund. It just, unless you have some magical ability to like see everything <laughs> and uh, maybe meet 20 companies in a day, maybe you can get to that kind of volume, but then how do you support them? Um, it's really difficult. So. For us, the, the space that we're playing in, in many ways, is a space we want to stay in. And you see a lot of funds, they, in fact, somebody, even when I was raising fund two or starting to raise it, they almost had this prescription. They're like, you should always double or triple your fund size each time because that's, that's what like, serious people do. <laughs> like that, that means you're successful. Um, and I question that. I'm like, really? Why? Um, I mean, I think the fund size... I'm forgetting who said this, but your fund size dictates a lot of your your strategy and your model. Yeah, I think it was Mike Naples. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Mike Mike has a, a lot of brilliant advice and experience in early stage investing, as as you all know. Um, but yeah, it's it's it makes a big difference. And so we're we're actually thinking about our next fund, which we'll start raising next year, and you know, thinking about the fund size and and how big do we want to go. It's it's certainly attractive for a lot of people to raise a larger fund because that means potentially you know, bigger outcomes and more management fees and all of those things. But I just want to make sure whatever strategy we choose, it's authentic to us and it will be successful. I was going to ask you the question of why go from, you know, three to 10. And it actually sounds like you were thinking about going from three to six. And I get it now in that it allows you to be authentic as a collaborative investor. But still, with the number of seed funds, angels, um, I'm suspecting that there is still a level of competition for the hottest deals or the, the most sought after, you know, founder led deals. And in those cases, you know, there still needs to be something that's differentiated that allows you to get into those rounds consistently. And I'm just curious on how have you thought about your own differentiation and what you bring to the table? that allows you to access uh, some of the opportunities you're getting into? So for us, we, we actually published uh, a few weeks back on our website, just um, something we shared internally just with portfolio founders. We call it a founder manual. It's kind of like, here's, here's where we can help and here's how to, to use us essentially. And so it's, it's now on our website, uh, weekend.fund, if anyone wants to look at it. And we, we touch on a lot of different areas where we can provide support, but the primary areas of focus are really around couple things. Um, one is around product. And I should mention Vedika is, is working with me on the fund as well. She joined part-time actually, nights and weekends uh, a year and a half ago and, and about a year ago joined full-time. She's based out of London. And so her and I work remotely and, and collaborate on the fund. And, and we're both product managers by trade. So I've spent many years as a product manager, including at Product Hunt. I was essentially head of product and also I've seen a lot of products. And so a lot of where we get frankly, energy is, is working with founders and teams on product, whether it's strategy or just like tactical things, like being almost like an operator um, 
frankly, we're not going to do the hands-on, like dirty work. Um, that's not our job, and that's what, that's not what we should be doing. It's ultimately the founder that's that's there to to be doing that work. But in many ways, we see ourselves as someone who can give uh, some guidance and support, and maybe throw out a bunch of terrible ideas. Um, yesterday, we spoke with a portfolio founder, and and sometimes I do preface my ideas with, you know, these might be awful, but I believe that a lot of awful ideas can inspire some crazy, brilliant ideas too. And so a product is is an area where we like to get involved. And what I found also is founders, whether it's true or not, there's a growing number of founders that do want to work with operator investors or people who have founded companies in the past. And that's not to say that non-operator investors aren't excellent. There's many that have never started the company that are remarkable. Um, but there is, especially in the early stage, this feeling of um, that where founders feel like maybe they they can empathize uh, with them more, uh, people who have founded companies and people who have built products. And so when we tell founders that we love to get engaged and help them with product, they I feel like there's um, there's some authenticity to that. It's it's because we have spent many years building products. The other area that's a little bit more on the same strategy and, and uh, collaboration side is community building. And that's an area that I think very few investors have experience in. And I spent many years building community even before Product Hunt to some extent at kind of a smaller scale. And then more tactically, the, the other area, this goes back to the fund size, is future fund financing, whether it's in the existing round or Series A and above. Because we're not a large fund, we don't have follow-on signaling risk. And we're very much aligned with the founder in that we we want them to raise money from excellent investors, whether it's other small co-investors who could be uh, you know, high value add, or when they're ready, it's you know, find a, a strong lead. And, and we built a lot of great relationships with people over the years, uh, particularly through my experience at Product Tent, um, to help make those, those introductions and so yeah, those are some specific areas where we're also thinking through a lot of like operational things. Um, we do a, do one thing called like a founder brainstorm every six weeks, where we bring together the portfolio, whoever wants to show up and do four to five person kind of brainstorming sessions where each founder comes with an idea, a challenge that they want feedback on. And what I found, especially now during COVID is founders get a lot of value. The MPS of, of this, because we do anonymous services, is incredibly high because they, they feel like it's an opportunity to speak with a small confidential group of people and get other perspectives on their challenges, whether it's recruiting challenges or you know, I'm having an issue with, with growth. Um, can I get some advice or ideas around how I can solve this problem? And taking kind of a, a micro community building strategy to our fund is, is also something we're exploring more of going into the new year. I'm so glad you brought up the concept of NPS. When I was at First Republic, one of our main KPIs in assessing the health of the organization was NPS and how well we were serving our clients. In your case, it is portfolio companies and how well you're serving them. And NPS typically ends up being reality versus expectations. But one thing that comes into conflict as you get bigger and you have more portfolio companies and you get spread more thin is trying to maintain that level of service to your portfolio founders. I'd love to understand how you think about that and how do you ensure that your NPS stays high with um, your companies? Yeah, Harry Hurst, he's a CEO of Pipe, uh, which is a portfolio company of ours. He, he has this, this formula, uh, I suppose, called check size to healthfulness ratio. And I've seen a few other people actually use that 
comparison. And I think that is actually a really interesting metric to consider in that I thought a lot about what a founder is want. And if I was raising, you know, for a company today, uh, how would I approach this? Who, who would I want on my cap table? And I believe that there is a strong incentive for founders to raise from a lot of people with this high check, check size to helpfulness ratio, meaning relatively small checks, but very useful and high value add versus getting a large check from just one fund. And that's not to say I wouldn't go down that path because I have before. Um, but right now, when there are so many early stage investors, it might be at more advantageous for founders to actually raise from 10 people that write 100K checks versus one single million dollar check. Because how, how possibly could that one single firm be you know, as valuable as 10 people if you choose to write 10 people? In some ways, um, I, can, I can talk about how amazing we are and how much value we add, <laughs> but let's just, let's, just say, let's assume that's all BS um, and that we're just mediocre in terms of the value we provide. At the very least, our check size is relatively small and dilution is relatively small for our support. And if we provide very little value, it's of a little cost. Um, and so that's not the way I pitch it to founders, um, but that's just one way of looking at sort of the stage that we're in and when this ecosystem is, again, becoming more and more competitive in the early stage, I think it's advantageous to have a smaller fund so that you can actually achieve that high check size to help in this ratio. Are you seeing that in practice? Because what it implies in some respect is that as a seed fund, you have to have clear and tangible, and I'm, I'm talking about traditional seed funds that are 30, 40, 50, looking to lead seed rounds and putting a million bucks into a company. A lot of those firms don't have a lot of follow-on reserves. So it's not a necessarily a function of, you know, if you take money from me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you through multiple rounds of capital. Doesn't that, in effect, put a lot of pressure and a call to all these seed funds that if you are going to win some of these competitive deals in a market now where you have a lot of solo capitalists that could, you know, write these hundreds to $200,000 deals, that you have to be that much better and very clearly that much better to continue to win some of the hottest deals out there. Do you think we're there right now or do you think that's it's still too early to tell i think overall what we're seeing is as there's more competition it requires people to get more creative just like any kind of market it ultimately will tease out i think the the winners and and maybe the ones that ultimately don't succeed um and it's going to force people to differentiate it's going to force people to try new things and there has certainly been a lot of uh, or a decent amount of experimentation and venture but when you compare it to early stage startups, there's tons of experimentation. Like it's all about experimentation and differentiation and exploring new ideas. And that's not as, as true in the venture ecosystem historically. And so I think overall, this is great for the ecosystem. It does make it harder to do our job, <laughs> I suppose. But I think it ultimately will, will result in um, you know, better support for founders and companies and hopefully new models entirely. We're seeing you know, a lot of people uh, in many ways, kind of being forced to try new ideas, whether it's exploring kind of studio models or exploring, um, you know, in some cases, the big firms are, are very much being like vertically integrated to some extent. And I think that's all a good thing, ultimately. I've been, uh, you know, spending a lot of time over the last decade working with emerging managers and the different type of models that have emerged. And I, I think we're still at the early stages of seeing this evolution play out. And I agree with you. At the end of the day, it is a much better funding environment for founders. And that, of course, is a, is a good thing. But with all of the people that are starting funds, and we're seeing it you know, through small firms, you know, people that want to be true institutional seed firms, 
There's the unsexy part of the job. And you mentioned AngelList does a lot of your back office and gets you set up. But are there things as you've scaled, um, and now you're going to go on and raise fund three that you do from an organizational standpoint that don't necessarily show up on the stat sheet as it relates to just investing and helping companies? There's uh, a lot of operational aspects, I guess, to venture. Um, Unlike startups, I would say there's more repeatable things. Um, I would say in some ways you're kind of doing the same things over and over and you might do them in different ways, but they're typically the same things. And so an example of that is in some form or another, you're probably meeting with a founder. Uh, Maybe it's in person. Now it's probably over Zoom or or some video uh, app. And and then you're probably doing some diligence of some sort. And then you might be doing reference checks. Um, You're probably following up with, you know, either questions or like a yes or a pass and so on and so forth. And so what Vedika and I have actually been thinking a lot about over the past, it's kind of been an ongoing evolution. And we just did a retrospective actually yesterday together to figure out what we want to do differently. And, and part of what we've done with our process is try to operationalize and create systems around some of these repeatable tasks. And it definitely is not like the most sexy by any means. Like I spend a lot of time in my inbox, like Venture is like half the job is just doing emails, um, <laughs> to be quite honest. But we try to think about how do we be more efficient with that. And so real specifically, what we'll do is uh, to kind of give you a preview of uh, sort of our stack in a sense. We, we use Airtable to record every single company we get introduced to. And I should clarify, company that we get introduced to that we're actually going to speak with. We don't put every company that gets emailed to us. And with that entry, we include some things that you'd expect, like the name, the URL, short tagline. But we also include who introduced us or, or maybe if it was directly from the founder so we can kind of track who's forwarding us deals and what were the outcomes of those. And, and that's sort of step one, which then ties into Zapier, uh, creates a channel in our Slack group called like deal slash company. So now Vedic and I speak and converse about the particular company in that Slack channel. And so we kind of have this, in some ways, like this history of, of our entire conversation, um, at least in text about that company uh, forever. And from there, we, we meet the company, um, schedule a time, chat with them, usually for 45 minutes to an hour. And then from there, we, we go through our diligence process and fast forward uh, through a bunch of work there. We, we end up either you know, committing, um, at which point we, we write like a short memo, which part of it's to, for ourselves, to almost take a snapshot of like our thinking at that time, which we believe will be helpful education for ourselves in the future. But it's also something that we use um, for LP updates uh, in a different form later on. And then from there, we, we get back to the person that introduced us and thank them you know, for the introduction, let them know that we committed. Um, now, in the event that we pass, we, we also you know, send an, an email to the founder. And we have sort of an SLA that we have um, uh, of seven days. We always try to get to an answer within seven days or less. And we actually have notifications to like inform us that like, hey, your your deadline's coming up just to make sure we're on on top of it. I'll I'll be honest, we're not always, you know, hitting that number. Sometimes it, things take longer, but um, that is our goal. And ultimately, if we pass, we we tell the the founder also. Um, we tell them, hey, here here's why we pass transparently. We hopefully are. I, I hope we come off as humble because obviously we're totally wrong on some of these things, but. As a founder, I like to be told, like, what was the issue? Like, what can I learn from, from this experience? Or what is their perspective? So we're, we're, we are transparent in letting them know like, the reason why. And then lastly, we then follow up with the person that introduced us and essentially send them a copy of what we sent to the founder, just thanking them for the introduction. And so there's a lot of steps involved in each, each thing. Um, 
not all of it's like the most exciting to draft a bunch of emails, but we feel it's super important to be transparent and open with the founder and also, you know, uh, responsive. And, and lastly, the thing that very few founders or excuse me, investors seem to do is actually follow up with the person that introduced them. Sometimes we get email replies where people say like, I'm amazed that you actually sent me this. Like nobody does that. And for us, uh, that's, that's just what we kind of baked into our process. That's great. And it's very clear that you're intentional in how you ensure NPS and using transparency and communication to do that. I want to shift a little bit to Fund 3 now. With Fund 2, you mentioned having over 99 LPs. How are you approaching the fundraise for Fund 3, assuming you're upsizing in terms of the type of LPs you're going after and the approach that you're going to now employ? Yeah, what we're thinking a lot about right now is is more and now is a really opportune moment because we we haven't started raising fund three but we'll probably do that in q1 and it's a great moment to actually reflect on um, how do we want to adjust the fund strategy including the size or even the structure of like including the details of the lpa like what what stage companies do we invest in the thoughts that we're thinking a lot about is how do we invest earlier is one area and how do we create a structure where we can invest pre-company, pre-idea potentially. That's a long rabbit hole of a conversation that I'm, I'm not ready to get into quite yet, but we are thinking more about uh, diversifying um, and playing a slightly different game than everybody else. Um, but potentially doing that along with what we have been doing. In some ways, it's why, why you know, if, it's, if it ain't broke, don't fix it <laughs> kind of thing. Um, but we also want to challenge ourselves and try new things. So we're thinking a lot about should we be going earlier? How do we make that economically uh, make sense? How do we do that at scale? And with that, we're also thinking, is that, is that two funds? Um, do we actually raise two consecutive funds with different areas of focus potentially? So all of these things are frankly way up in the air. Um, I, I won't uh, claim to have an answer exactly on, on how we're going to approach it yet. But what I do know is that we're, we're not planning to go down the traditional venture path, at least not for the next couple of years, where you tend to see companies or excuse me, venture funds, you know, start at maybe three, go to 10, then they raise 25 and then they raise 50. And, and now all of a sudden they're, they're in a different game. They're, they're having to lead deals. Um, they're, I've spoken with investors who have made that shift and they didn't realize at the time how much challenging it would be, how challenging it would be to get a 500K check into a company when they used to write a 100K check. We want to play where our strengths are and we believe our strengths are an early stage. And we also want to play where the market is going. And if we believe that there'll be more and more venture funds, more and more early stage investors, like let's even take it to an extreme. Let's say there's 10 times more investors in the early stage. I think it's going to be really hard to, to compete if you have to write massive checks, no matter how good you are. I don't know. We'll see how the, the actual ecosystem plays out. But I just want to make sure whatever we do, we can be successful and we're positioned in the best way to do so. So speaking about that a little bit more, and I, and I want to come back to this idea of LP composition, and your model is very, very clear in that you're looking to co-invest with other investors where you come in as part of the cap table and provide a unit of value that's very clear and authentic to you. Is that something that speaks to the type of LPs you can attract? Forgetting about fund size and the obvious challenges of an institutional writing a check into a small fund. But even if you went up to, let's say, 20 million, and we're still playing this collaborative role, have you thought about going down the institutional path conversations? And what have those yielded in, in terms of the type of model you have? Yeah, I did have some conversations with 
traditional kind of institutional LPs uh, about a year ago, year and a half ago when I was raising the second fund. And my intention with those, I, I did not expect that they would invest. Um, I assumed that they wouldn't. And most of them did not, um, with the exception of one. And the reason for that at that moment was uh, was primarily they weren't comfortable with me also CEO as product hunt um, and investing. Um, as you know, a lot of institutional LPs are a little bit more conservative. Um, and there's some good reasons for that, I believe, but they, they're less uh, open to experimentation. And they're also, I think, hesitant to, to invest in someone who's, who's not 100% full-time on their fund. I have a different perspective. Of course, I'm biased in all of that, <laughs> but I have a different perspective um, on the value and, and the ability for a founder, CEO, or operator to invest and continue operating. But yeah, as we're thinking about fund three, if we were to grow to 20 million plus, I would have to actually speak, it'd be very difficult not to raise from one or maybe two institutional LPs because the nature of the reason why we have over 120 LPs and, and we can fund two is part of it was strategic. It's, it's good to have a lot of strong people. A lot of them are, are successful operators, CEOs uh, on the cap table or as LPs, and, and that's helpful um, as, as a network. But the, the other reason was partly the reality of the fund size. I, I needed to raise from a lot of people because institutional LPs who typically write 3 million plus checks, they wouldn't, they wouldn't invest in the fund. And so as a result, it just required me to raise from a lot of people. And so most likely, to be quite honest, it'll be similar. I actually expect our, our LP base to be fairly similar to what we are right now. Um, we might have one institutional LP take a, a large portion of the next fund, but considering we're not planning to raise a massive fund, I don't, I don't see us kind of going that route unless it makes sense uh, more uh, serendipitously. Yeah, thanks for sharing your LP composition. And I'm not surprised. I think it's very consistent with what we see of similar size funds. And one of the things that we always talk to emerging managers about is understanding the different LP archetypes and making sure that you're marketing to the right type of LPs when you raise given your own investor profile. I want to move to our final segment, which is our heat check segment. And the first question I have for you, and I realize it's only been about five years investing, but whether you have an anti-portfolio or that one company that you know you had a chance, you looked at, and you passed, and you really now regret, who is that company? And what did you learn from that? For us, the, the biggest miss so far has been Hopin. We, we spoke with Hopin, um, it was December actually, we were at the Protestant offsite, um, I was, and spoke with, with uh, the founder and he was raising a round, first round of funding. Um, I'm not sure if I can share the numbers, but it was an expensive seed round, um, you know, maybe three times more expensive than what we typically try to invest in. On one side, we, we have had a focus of tools for distributed teams and the future of remote work is something that we've focused on really since the beginning of the fund, partly inspired by Product Hunt being a fully distributed team as well. So there's a lot of reasons for us to, to get excited about Hopin. And for those that don't know, Hopin is essentially a, a tool to run remote conferences uh, through video. And again, this was December last year, 2019. Spoke with, with Johnny and uh, there's a lot that we liked about it, but we, we ultimately passed for a few reasons. One was one, the price was really expensive and valuations do matter. Um, 
people like to say that they don't uh, and then point to like the extremes, like the Ubers of the world. Um, but valuations do matter a lot for your returns. So that was one reason. The other was we we just weren't 100% sure if, if Hopin was the company to, at the moment, these online conferences wasn't like a normal thing. This was pre-COVID. We had no idea COVID was happening. <laughs> and so we ultimately passed, um, you know, fast forward, COVID happened. Uh, everybody, you know, every company, it seems like in the world, uh, jumped on to hop in or something similar. In fact, right after this, I'm, I'm doing a hop in interview um, with Foundation Capital, who's using their platform. And they, they raised it something like a $200 million valuation. And then um, I believe they just recently closed a $2 billion valuation. So within less than in about a year, roughly, they went from you know, no funding to a $2 billion valuation. And it's painful because you look at it and, you know, if we invested, we would have returned the fund already, um, you know, on paper. So anyway, it, it hurts, but it's, it's the game that we play. And I'll add on to that question. Was there any particular learning now that you look back in hindsight of, hey, you know, if this happened again, maybe we would take a different view or a different tact? Some investors have a, they focus more on certain aspects. There, there's the the team. That's one component. There's the market. That's one one area. Um, certainly, the product is is an area of focus. The learning from that is to think more about the market and try to place our bets where we believe markets can dramatically grow. And how do you find companies that are riding those waves? You know, I'm I'm more of a product driven person in, at heart. Like my my focus and my passion is is largely in the product that you're building. And so I think my natural tendency is to focus more on a combination of team and product, and maybe less so market. And I think the the learnings from that is we should be we should be placing the bets in the the areas where we think the market could be growing dramatically. And we'll be wrong a lot of the time. But if we're right and this company is good, they don't even have to be great. Sometimes if they're just good, it can be a massive company. Yeah, no, that's great. What's the best piece of advice you've gotten as a VC about investing? It's very basic, but one of the most important, I guess, pieces of advice uh, in my mind that I received was was really thinking about valuations and entry price. And I've talked to a lot of investors who seem to be very price insensitive. Um, they will invest at extremely expensive rounds for early stage companies, maybe even pre-launch companies. And certainly some of those would be really successful. Um, you know, Hopin being just kind of one example where, you know, we, we did pass in part because we felt it was too expensive and that was a wrong decision. However, if your portfolio mix, if you're an early stage investor, let's say investing pre-seed, seed stage, and your, let's just take an extreme, your average entry price is $20 million, let's say, it's going to be really hard to have an outlier fund. And part of that is, is just due to the nature that there, there are very few billion dollar outcomes are very few $10 billion outcomes. And if your model requires you to have numerous multi-billion dollar outcomes in your portfolio as an early stage investor, it's going to be really hard to, to be wildly successful. And so valuation is, is certainly a factor for us. And we see it less at the individual level. Um, we certainly invested in expensive, you know, we've invested in seed stage companies at like $25 million valuation. So we're not afraid of that. But it's more about the average the, the kind of entry price and what does the overall fund construction look like. Uh, we think it's really important. I've seen you know, some of the public releases, some of the great LPs that you've had. Presumably, some of these LPs have been great mentors and advisors. But is there an investor out there that you particularly aspire toward, really respect? Who is that and, and why? 
So my answer is going to be a biased answer, uh, <laughs> but it, it would be uh, my, my partner, Susie Rue, uh, someone I admire a lot. And the reason for that is she, so she was investing before I was investing and uh, we had the opportunity, we had some overlap while she was, you know, full-time investing and, and we've co-invested in, I think, six or seven companies together. But now today she's, she's primarily building a company. She does some angel investing on the side. And what I admire about her is, you know, a lot of founders say how, much, how hard they work for their companies. And uh, Susie does that to an extreme, maybe to a fault, to be quite honest, where she has worked so hard on work, like really working hands-on with companies where she or, or if she's investing with, uh, you know, alongside her partner, Troy or cross culture at the time, even if they have small stakes in that company, she works her ass off for those companies. And I think on one side, you might look at that as, okay, maybe that's not good. Maybe she's spending too much time and, and not spending more time sourcing or things like that. But at the end of the day, in, investing is such a relationship brand driven business. And, you know, the, the way that you support companies today will, will actually come back to you uh, for better or worse in the future. And, and I think people like that are, are ultimately who are, will be successful long-term. And so anyway, I take inspiration from her and thinking about that. And um, we've certainly helped a lot of our portfolio companies, but then I always wonder, are, have we helped them enough? And it's ultimately your promise as an investor, especially when there's so many people investing today. Um, you kind of want to honor that promise or that commitment that you made when you wrote the check. Well, Ryan, this has been a lot of fun. Really appreciate you being on the show and uh, look forward to the growth of Weekend Fund of the Years. Yeah. Thanks, Amir. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Ryan and the Weekend Fund, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.